Outlier, and welcome to kind of fairly political podcast. We talk about politics and shit. Why the accent? I don't understand the accent. I don't know. I felt like it. Good. Okay. I don't know. Like sometimes I just feel like doing a random ass accent. All right, let's. Uh, I feel offended as someone from Kentucky. I wasn't trying to do a Kentuckian accent. I kind of sound like it. But then again, you know, I'm offended by everything, so I'm a liberal. I mean, I'm a liberal too, so that doesn't say much of anything, son. Alright. So, we have Mr. Brett Born Again Barry joining us, in addition to Paul the Liberal, with me, the Waffle. The Waffle? Is there a story behind the Waffle? Kind of like a waffle between conservative and liberal. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I also call myself the panda. Why the panda? Because pandas are black and white. And I'm conservative and liberal. Oh. I got conservative spots. I got liberal spots. I thought maybe that was like an ethnicity joke or something like that. <laughs> All right, so first topic we shall be talking about boxers or briefs? Uh, boxers, briefs. Briefs? Boxers. You need some rigidity in your life. You know, I'm going to say there's a, there, maybe I never noticed it before, but uh, around the time that I made the conversion from conservative liberals, when I also switched from briefs to boxers, <laughs> maybe there's a correlation there. I'm yeah. telling you, boxer briefs are where, it at, where it's at. Sloppy. I don't know. I never bought the no, boxer no, briefs. No, thank you. I never bought the boxer briefs. It's funny because just... his, his Skype name is Brett Bornberry, which is also BB, which is also boxer briefs. Wow. That's Very deep. insightful. No, I just feel like the whole boxer briefs, it's like... They can't decide. Are they boxers or are they like tight shorts? It's like if I wanted to wear tight shorts, I'd wear tight shorts. But like at the same time, boxers like shorts. Yes. I like shorts, so I wear shorts. I mean, under your pants? I mean, wear pants or shorts, man. No, but the boxers are shorts, so that, that takes the place of the shorts. You don't wear shorts and pants together. That's weird. No, you totally wear shorts and pants together. This is like Midwest fashion. Put some jorts. Put some, pull some jeans over them. Hey, you know, hey, don't diss the cargo shorts. That's all I'm saying. Jorts, man. Hey, jorts are one thing. I make no appeal to defending jorts. But I will defend cargo shorts until the day I die. Well, you're a liberal in Kentucky, so... There might be a correlation. Do you wear sandals and socks? No, I, that's that's. Oh, dumb. good, good. Yeah, that's, that's a big thing here. I don't yes. like it. 
sandals, sandals and socks. Some of the worst. Even yeah. my fucking professors wear them. It's gross. I mean, Dude. Something that I've noticed a lot at our college is if I threw a rock and I hit a girl, it would probably be a girl wearing fucking leggings. Or uh, what's wrong with leggings? Leggings. Not nothing wrong, but just every single girl wears leggings. Well, that's I feel like that's a bad argument because there is a significant problem with sandals and socks. Like that is just a crime against humanity. I had a physics teacher. I had a on a fucking pizza. No, I say I disagree. People can put whatever they want on their pizza. Okay, let's not start regulating the pizza. Oh, you can put whatever you want on your pizza. I'm just going to call it against a crime against humanity. You put freaking pineapples on it. No, I, I, they're two different things. Look, if people, there's a mood where I can understand people might want pineapple on pizza. Some people like the whole sweet and savory thing. It's not for me, but I get it. If I had a physics, sweet- I had a physics teacher in college who literally, this was what he wore almost every day. He wore uh, dress socks up to his knees. Or they were not dress socks, uh, tube socks that came all the way up to his knees with sandals. Is he from naturally. Kentucky? I don't think he was from Kentucky, but this was in in Kentucky. Yeah, this was in college. Sound like Kentucky at but, all? But but he wore he wore tube socks, white tube socks up to his knees with sandals. He wore uh, uh, shorts, the carpenter, the khaki carpenter shorts, or they weren't. Sorry, they weren't carpenter. They were just khaki shorts. And, and he wore coat. a white t-shirt tucked into the shorts uh, every day. Geez. Every See, day. I, I was going to say, like, it wouldn't be so awful if he wore, like, a Hawaiian shirt or something. No, yeah, because at least there's, like, a kitsch that you're going on. No, this was just, like, it was, like, he went to, like, the, the he went to Walmart and, like, went to the person that mans this, the, the, whatchamacallit, the clothing section it was just like, I wanted the fuck my shit up fam special. And they gave it to him. They gave it to him good. Yeah. They fucked his shit up. See, that reminds me of a joke. A woman, a blonde goes to the, goes up to a bartender and asks for a double entendre. And he gave it to her. Ha. 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 Okay, Man. anyway. All right. Now we are going to do a story about France. <laughs> oh, don't do the accent. Horrible accent. So France had its election, uh, well, the first of two elections this Sunday. Uh, the French presidential election is in two stages. The first is uh, a, what they call kind of like a jungle election. We would call it a jungle primary here in the U.S. Basically where there's just a whole bunch of candidates. There are 11 candidates running. And there will be a runoff in June uh, of the top two candidates. The top two candidates are Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. Uh, Macron topped Sunday's first round with 23.75% of votes, slightly ahead of Le Pen with 21.53%, uh, according to final results from the Interior Ministry. Uh, Macron, 39, now becomes the favorite to be elected as France's next president. He is the youngest ever French presidential hopeful and has never run for election before. Um, Macron. Oh, so it's also important to note that this is the first time since the post-war period 
that the traditional left and right ruling parties were both ejected from the race in the first round. So Macron is a former investment banker who had been a chief advisor and then economy minister to the socialist Francois Hollande. Uh, that's the current president. But he quit government last year and launched his own political movement on March, uh, or on March, which is on the move. That was neither, <sighs> quote, left nor right, promising to revolutionize what he called France's uh, vacuous and decaying political system. Uh, Le Pen is basically uh, more of a yeah. far right uh, candidate. The central message of Marine Le Pen's campaign was the staple of the Front National Party since it was co-founded by her father in 1972, keeping France for the French. Le Pen promised to give priority to French people over non-nationals in jobs, housing, and welfare, and would hold a referendum to cement this policy into the Constitution. She said she would demand extra tax from companies that employed any kind of foreign worker. Uh, In the final days of the first round campaign, she returned firmly to the main concern of her electorate, immigration. She went further than she had done before by promising to immediately suspend all legal immigration in order to reassess what she called the, quote, uncontrollable situation, unquote, of foreigners coming into France. She promised a ban on religious symbols, including the Muslim headscarf, from all public places. Both the right-wing Les Republicains Party and the ruling left-wing Socialists, which have dominated government and French politics for decades, were knocked out of the race. They managed to take only around 25% of the vote between them. Well, something that so, I think is interesting about... Well, I, I, before we get into Marie Le Pen, I would like both of you to guess what Francois Hollande's approval rating is. 1%, I think. 6%. Uh, 4%. 4%, yeah. So he's gone down a little bit again. That's, that's Last I saw good. was 6%. I got to be honest with you. When, like, when you're doing worse than George Bush was when he left office... That's bad. That's I mean, really before, bad. if we really want to say, like, even he's doing even worse than Trump is. Well, Trump's doing better than Bush was when Bush left office. Really? Yeah. Bush was in the 20s when he left office. Jesus H. Yeah. Christ. That is bad. Yeah, it was pretty abysmal. I'm starting to miss that guy. He is very lovable. He's like your pet dog who is eight feces or something. I don't know. I mean, that sounds good. Okay. It's like, come on. Keeps falling. Come on, dog. Why are you eating your own shit again? Well, that's one way to look at it. Okay, what do you think about the, the French election? I mean, I think that everyone was like, oh, Marie Le Pen will never make it past the general election. And now she could become freaking president of France. She's probably not going to make it. Like, I mean, everyone and their mother said that about God Emperor Trump, you know? So clearly we don't know that because like every single big, well, not every single big thing, but like the two big things that everyone said were going to go one way were completely the other because of this kind of false confidence. Nobody thought Brexit was going to happen. Brexit's a thing now. Nobody thought Trumpy's going to be president. Trump's president now. Like, in this day and age, Marie Le Pen becoming president wouldn't even be the least believable thing to happen. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say... I would say to dismiss Le Pen at your own risk. Now, to be fair, current polls have um, Macron leading Le Pen 62 to 38, which yeah. is That's pretty big. The last Le Pen. I mean, the problem. Well, was, the like, the last Le Pen was even worse. In the last Le Pen, he got beat 88-12. So, I mean, the problem with Mr. Macaroon is that like, <laughs> did you cut? Is that a joke or is that? Oh shit, Macron, Macron. Yeah, Macron. Macaroon. Continue with your obviously well-informed opinion. Anyway, President Macron, like the whole thing about his candidacy is that like all the people who say they're going to vote, like I feel as if there could be a problem in that I don't know if all the people who say they're going to vote for this fellow are actually going to vote for this fellow. Because like, oh, it's in the bag. He's going to beat Le Pen because who the hell is going to vote for Le Pen? And then half the voters just aren't going to show up. Like this isn't Venezuela where you're cutting out. Uh, I didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently, I, th- I think it's Venezuela. Anyway, there's de- there's a South American country where you are required by law to vote. Well, there's several countries where that's the case. Um, t- that's true. But to be fair, the one that I was thinking of specifically was a South American country, and like they have like ads on televisions for political candidates, like two people pretending to be Barack Obama, a guy who pretended to be Jesus, a guy who was like the devil. It was really funny and stupid. Anyway, ignoring all of that, the whole point is, considering that voting isn't something that you have to do in France, then there's no reason that anyone in France would want to vote. And if they consider that we already have it in the bag, the polls say that Marie Le Pen is going to lose, then that doesn't help her odds. Don't let that help it doesn't help Mac- Mac- Macron's odds. I would feel um, hopeful about Le Pen if she had she was first. But since uh, Macron came out first, he's probably going to win because the the whole point is like the only way Le Pen could win is if people were like super unmotivated to vote at all. And sure. Macron isn't going to get a whole lot of crossover from, like, Melancon. I think that's what he's called. The um, super guy who's, yeah, who wants to leave the EU as well. Um, but Le Pen, sure, sure as hell, isn't going to get a whole lot of crossover from Philon either. So right now, as it stands, like, they have their core groups, and Macron's core group is bigger than Le Pen's. Well, actually, to that end, I feel like Le Pen probably has a better chance of getting crossover from Mélenchon's voters than she would Fillon. Because Fillon was very uh, conservative um, economically. And Le Pen, the interesting thing about Le Pen is she's more of a true, even more than Trump. Trump played a right-wing populist, but he's really governed just more conservative. 
But yeah. Le Pen actually has right wing populist ideas. So so this is Le Pen's platform essentially at this point. So she wants to give priority to French workers, make employers who hire foreigners, including EU citizens, pay an extra tax of 10% of the employee's salary. She wants to lower the retirement age from 62 to 60, reduce income tax for the lowest earners, impose an import tax on products made by the French firms abroad, keep the 35-hour work week as a base, but allow different professions to negotiate different working hours. She has a commitment to give national priority to French people over non-nationals in jobs, housing, and welfare to be written into the Constitution after a referendum. Ban the wearing of all visible religious symbols in all public spaces. Scrap several tiers. Um, yeah. Scrap several tiers. Well, I mean... <laughs> yeah. She wants to scrap several tiers of local administration, including the regions, Introduce proportional representation for all elections. Uh, she wants to fly French flags outside all public buildings and take down EU flags. Cut the price of gas and electricity immediately by 5%. Reintroduce school uniforms. Uh, <laughs> launch negotiations with the EU for France to regain border control, economic and modern monetary sovereignty, and authority over laws. Hold an in-out referendum on EU membership. She wants to reduce legal immigration to 10,000 per year, scrap French nationality rights for children born to two foreign parents in France, stop naturalizing illegal immigrants, make foreigners' children wait two years before they can access free state education, scrap state medical help for illegal immigrants. She wants to hire an extra 15,000 police, create 40,000 more prisons, um, prison places. I don't know what that means. Withdraw French nationality rights from people who have fought abroad. Expel foreigners whose names are on intelligence lists for suspected radicalization. Raise defense spending to 3% of GDP. Introduce compulsory military service for at least three months. Pull France out of NATO. So there's like, there's this mix of like populism in terms of reducing the retirement age, expanding the welfare state considering reducing the 35 hour work week but mixed with very hard authoritarianism especially in terms of raising defense bringing school uniforms back increasing prisons things like that um yeah i don't think it's gonna pay off she like, also yeah well so she also that wants far left especially like communists are very 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 close-minded to anyone who's remotely nationalist she wants to promote nuclear power, reduce consumption of fossil fuels, maintain Ooh. the ban on fracking, oh, promote hydrogen good. cars and agriculture on a human rather than industrial scale. So the problem Macron has, in my opinion, is that he is much more establishment. And in fact, this is the he's a male Hillary Clinton, and yeah, he's very centrist. I mean, <laughs> no, because like I said, the difference is Trump was at just pretending like he govern he's governing like a regular republican le pen isn't like that so macron probably would be similar to a european version of hillary clinton so he wants more flexibility on labor laws and a loosening of the 35 hour work week lower taxes on businesses and a permanent reduction of companies social charges um he does want to reform the unemployment system to extend it to more people including the self-employed, 
but with more control to ensure job seekers accept offers and retrain. Uh, yeah, he wants to... Uh, he has a public investment plan of 50 billion euros over five years, but he wants to cut 60 billion euros in public spending through changes made to the public sector workforce. He wants to scrap 120,000 public sector jobs, scrap housing tax for 80% of households, uh, reform the wealth tax. Uh, he wants to tax global internet gains on the profits they make in, or sorry, global internet giants on the profits they make in France. Um, yeah. So, and in terms of security defense, though, he's actually not that much different. So he also wants to restore compulsory military service for a month for all young men and women, bring defense spending to 2% of GDP, uh, modernize France's nuclear arsenal, create 10,000 more police and 15,000 new prisons. So, I mean, honestly, I still prefer this macaroon fellow to... What? Anyway, I prefer this fellow to Marie Le Pen because the whole thing about Le Pen is very much that her nationalism is not something that I'm very much okay with. It's like this whole thing, we shouldn't support immigration. We should support only French people. You know, if you have two people who want natively French, then you aren't French. Like, I'm not so sure how that's Well, yeah, because you're an immigrant. I'm not an immigrant. I was born in San Francisco, jackass. I mean, you would be an immigrant under these rules. I would assume. I don't know. I don't know your parents' nationality, but... What are you, first generation, third generation, second? Yeah. Yeah, so... Obviously, you're going to have some hesitation towards any policy compared to like someone who's like lived in America for generations and generations. But that's the thing. A lot of people, I would be even, be, well, I guess not technically. My dad was born in the U.S., but uh, his brother was born abroad. And so like if my dad had just been born at a slightly different time, I would have had one parent that wasn't a citizen, right? Or wasn't a natural-born citizen. So, like, this is the thing. I mean, I get where that comes from. Like, if, if you're if you're going to take out people that are, like... If everybody... If a requirement of citizenship is that both your parents had to be natural French citizens or natural American citizens, that eliminates a lot of people. And it's like... I don't identify as anything other than American. Why would I, you know, so like if you're born in France, just because your parents were immigrants, like you're French, you grew up, you were born, you lived your whole life in France. Uh, well, I mean, what is being French? It's um, some kind of cultural identity to like a nation basically, isn't it? Just, you know, it's written down on a law book somewhere that you're French. That's meaningless. What it really is is, like, your your core identity. And most of the immigrants to France have been put in, like, government housing and, like, um, kind of, like, on, like, the outskirts of town. So they haven't really assimilated at all. So if 
I, my guess would be if you walk through like an African quarter in a French city and you ask them like, do you think you're French or do you think you're something else? Like, what do you first identify with? They'd probably identify with something else. I mean, I don't think that's entirely fair, though. I mean, like, generally speaking, like, most immigrants that come to a country and, like, get citizenship of that country are like, yeah, I'm French, or yeah, I'm British, or, like, I'm... Uh, what's the word? I'm Pakistani British. I'm... British French, you know, like the idea is still very much of even if you want to claim some bit of your old identity from that old place you were from, which is fine because you lived there for a decent chunk of your life, pretending that you didn't live there at all is just kind of stupid. But at the same time, you still accept France into your new identity or England or America or wherever the Christ site to live. I mean, you're not as likely to accept it as part of. I mean, I feel like what you're saying. And also, like, the, the mentality, like, oh, I want to assimilate and stuff like that, might be true if you're an immigrant who wants to, like, work your way up the ladder. But if you, like, got displaced because of some famine or some war or something, you're not likely to have, like, that kind of aspiration. You might have, like, the mentality, oh, I just want to raise my family here. And then when my country is safe again, when it's stable again, I'll go back. Yeah, that's fair. But at the same time, you have a bunch of people who go to countries and work there for a bit and then leave. And, like, those people provide valuable skills. Yeah. So what Le Pen is arguing is that French people should have those jobs. Because if those those workers are just coming and leaving, they're not really uh, giving a long-term contribution to the to the country to the, to well, the economic yeah, system, that you to the culture. Or the person that is the most qualified. Um, well, what do you mean by qualified? Like or skilled? With a job, yeah, the skill. Because in many cases, like, it isn't about skill. It's just about, like, how much someone is willing to, to get paid for. Like, immigrant labor is a lot cheaper because they have a lot lower standards. They come from lower developed areas in the world. I mean, but look at most of the jobs immigrants are doing. Like, I don't think most white people in the United States would be down with picking fruits in the middle of the hot-ass summer with pesticides being sprayed everywhere with with little to no money. Like, a lot of these jobs are just jobs that... Well, why would you want an immigrant to do it, then? Why would you want anyone to do it? Uh, what I see in a lot of cases, especially in the U.S., is, like, immigration. It's kind of like the cheap, sloppy alternative to, like, automation. Jobs that are super outdated that no one should really even be doing anymore are, are still being done by people and they're still putting people in shitty situations where they're in a foreign country and no one really cares about them and everyone treats them like shit. And they're doing a crappy job that really shouldn't be done by people anymore because it's not safe and they get barely get paid and uh, it just doesn't end well for everyone. 
Like, I don't really know how to respond to this because at a certain point, I don't think you're entirely wrong in terms of the whole thing of should immigrants really be having to do this job and should we be giving these kinds of jobs to immigrants? I don't think we should. But at the same time, it's I'm very conflicted because the whole thing is at the same time, we need people to do this job. And if we make it cost more, then we're going to have to have it be more expensive. And then like these important things that we need are more expensive. And then are we going to be willing to pay for these things? Because like the reasons that we have like McDonald's, the reason that we have all these things is because we vote and we decide that we want cheap burgers. We want two dollar T shirts. We want five dollar pants. Yeah, so if the hamburger suddenly became three dollars, like you can say, oh, that's the price of immigration. The American people are paying for it. But really, like, what's the harm of that? I, America has plenty of food. Obesity is a big deal. Um, it's not like... It's not tied to the amount of food that you have. Thousands in some cases. I mean, honestly, but I would... Wait, I would what are you that. talking about? Like, at a certain <laughs> point... We're not going to go like through this that. again. We're not going to go through this again. Obesity is not tied to the amount of food that you have. So people in Somalia can get obese when they don't like have any food. Well, they don't get obese in Somalia because they don't have freaking McDonald's in Somalia. We don't yeah, have the Somali government. Less it's tight. So it's the type government. of food. You don't have the Somali government subsidizing corn. Anyways, like what I was going off of that was um, basically like Western societies and Western countries are really consumeristic and they're very very wasteful you know they want the cheapest stuff here 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 now 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 and it just leads to a ton of waste and we dump all of our garbage on the developed countries again so we bring in their workers we make them do shitty jobs so we can get the cheapest possible product and then we just dump all of our waste on it and all that consumption like all those cows that need to be fed and all that 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 land that needs to be irrigated all that is like degrading the environment at the same time. So sure, prices will go up, but I think that's necessary evil at this point. So there's, yeah, I can't speak to France in particular because I don't live in France, but in the United States, this isn't a question of we're forcing jobs on immigrants that um, because it's cheaper a lot of the immigrant work is done because Americans literally just won't do it. Right. So like there's all kinds of data that shows that, uh, when they implemented changes to worker programs, worker visas and started cracking down on people hiring illegal immigrants, employers, particularly in the agriculture sector section, just couldn't literally couldn't hire American workers. It was something like, uh, over 50% of uh the workers the american workers that came left they just left the job like they didn't return after like a day so i again i can't yeah, speak to that france implies that the the working conditions are subpar they're they shitty and the pay is shit. yeah nobody's disagreeing with that no yeah. nobody's disagreeing with that so why would you want to ship people from like developing countries from poverty and just uh, make them work for rich farm owners 
and corporations that are like own a shit ton of land. Well, okay. So crappy conditions while the Americans are sitting around eating hamburgers that they uh, make. Right. But so keep in mind what France is dealing with isn't shipping immigrants in, it's refugees. I mean, they they yeah, dealt with they they had over 100,000 they they had 85,000 applicants for refugee status in 2016. 85,000 people apply for asylum. So like this isn't a matter of bringing in workers for poor or to do well, cheap labor. It's a matter of that. people it's a matter of people escaping Sudan, Afghanistan, Haiti, Albania, Syria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Guinea, Bangladesh, Algeria and China. Those are the top 10. Okay, is that 10? Yeah, that's the top 10. It's very interesting because Algeria is actually a former French colony. Yes, ironically. So, and keeping in mind, there's a war happening in Afghanistan. There's a genocide happening in Sudan. And obviously we know what's happening in, in Syria. I mean, it's not like we did an episode about it. Yeah. I'm so, so really bummed we didn't call that episode seriously. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Okay. I mean, I, I think the big problem running into this going forward is that, or the big problem for Macron going forward is his establishment bias, his pro-business bias. I think that's, that could hurt him. And he's very lenient towards those refugees. I don't think that's going to hurt him. I think that's the thing that's going to help him. I, I, I think France, I think France... I don't think it matters. I don't think it fret. There was, yeah, there was a terrorist attack the day before, and Le Pen still still didn't win a plurality because of Nice. No, Um, Le Pen is popular because the same people that she's always popular with. People walking through the streets, waving French flags, and a Muslim guy, an Algerian guy, I think. Yeah, it was an Algerian dude. He drives a truck and kills like a hundred of them. Right. And there's a terrorist attack, and she still didn't win a plurality. I I think yeah. I think the thing you probably have it, about ten percent if it wasn't for Bastille Day and what happened. No, to she was she was polling. She finished about where she'd been polling for a month. She'd been polling in second place around twenty one percent for a while. If that happened in in America, I would uh, guarantee that there would definitely be a, a lot of concern, and most people would put that as their yeah. number one view. Because like Americans America? are terrified of terrorism, but I don't yeah. think that's helping her in France. I don't think that's helping Le Pen you think, in France. Wait, what about the, the Bata, Bataclan theater shooting? That, what about that it? theater shooting as well? What about that's it? That's like 100 people as well. A, Who cares? You're just listing terrorist events. That has nothing to do with it. People vote on it. Like, I get that. Like, terrorism is an issue. But at the same time, I don't think that fear mongering is going to really do very much. Ooh, I, I'm not even saying word. that. I'm not even saying that. All I'm saying is there's no evidence that fear of terrorism is helping Le Pen. Right? The, the really? bigger thing seems to That's be. That's what people said about Trump. 
No, in Trump's case, it was true. But Trump won. Like, I'm talking about Le Pen. Le Pen is yeah. polling at 38%. And she's polling at... She polled at 21 to 22% in the first round, which is roughly where she finished. And that didn't go up with the terrorist attack that happened literally two days before the vote. So there's no evidence that terrorism is changing French votes. That's what I'm saying. Yes, I completely agree that terrorism affected the vote in America because Americans were terrified of terrorism. What I'm saying is that doesn't appear to be the case in France. There's no data that indicates that's going to be the case in France. And in fact, it indicates that just like they rejected her father, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, in 2002, they're going to reject her in big numbers. And the only thing... Do you think that the rise of the far right in Europe has to do with the refugee crisis i mean oh i think i, I definitely think it does basic and accepted no no no, it does what i'm saying is i don't think that's going to get push her to over 50 percent. i don't think that's going to push her any higher than where she is now that's my point all right but i still think it's an issue that people care about it's an issue and that roughly 35 percent of people care about what i'm saying is she doesn't have it's an issue in France. There seem to be more people that are opposed to her stances on it than support it. Because my point was that there's uh-huh. nothing particularly special about Macron. He's very establishment and he is very like wishy-washy. Like there's nothing special about him. He's not an established politician. He's not, or, yeah, he's not an might, experienced might politician. Like he's not, he's not particularly resounding. He's got, odd things in his past where he married his teacher and like oh boy so and yet people are still presumably based on the polls going to vote for him in big numbers to basically not have Le Pen so I I don't think that that's going to work in France the same way it worked in the United States it's interesting uh, Le Pen's biggest voter demographic isn't old people it's actually uh, young people under 25s yeah that's well i feel like that that comes from the economically populist part of it yeah i guess uh france's economy isn't too hot for young people right all right my theater professor said that was very interesting is once you're above like 60 or something like that you shouldn't get to vote anymore because it's not affecting your future I think it should be the opposite. Well, that's a different discussion for a different day. Like, why would you want young people to vote? They don't know shit. The whole point of society is you have older Mm. people who get experience and they pass it on to the younger generation. No, I can tell you Like, there's a reason why you listen to your elders. There are people among every age that don't know shit, okay? Yeah, but... Like if you take an average, like the average eighteen but, year old, but the key thing, the key, a lot less than the, the key point to that was, like for example, in Brexit, the the old people that voted for Brexit because young people voted to stay by huge numbers, and older people voted to leave, and yeah. the young people were saying, yeah, you kind of screwed me because I'm the one that's going to hit get hit with the travel restrictions and not being able to freely go look for work among the EU, whereas if you're retired leaving Europe isn't really going to affect you at all. 
because your your retirement's already set. Your economic future doesn't depend on Britain staying or leaving Europe. So you're. I mean, you're Europe. acting like old people have the same mentality as young people. Old people aren't like selfish like that. Usually, they live through like oh, younger dude. people, and it's all about when you get older. You think about your legacy and what you're going to leave behind in the world and how you're going to help your grandchildren. At the same time, it's also, no. I'm old. I no longer really give much of a shit. Yeah, I mean, there's these people, but they're usually hermits. And i that's what the millennials are going to be. Maybe maybe we shouldn't let uh, old millennials vote. But, like, people who have had, like, families and are, like, concerned about, like, their grandchildren... And maybe they've experienced like the Great Depression, so they have a bit of perspective with that. I think that they they'd be more qualified to vote than an eight. Maybe old people should be forced to uh, actually grow up and be surrounded by minorities like millennials are, so that they won't vote for fucking demagogues. That's another way to look at it. I mean, over Ooh. half the people being born today aren't white in the United States, so. Maybe old people should have to be forced to integrate with other races before they vote. I mean, anyway, I just like next story. But yeah, next story. Um, I mean, there's going to be a point where like old people vote for something you agree with, and you're going to be like, "Oh, well, I didn't listen uh, to them." Before we move on to the next point, I just want to say a very cliche. If there were a liberal policy with, that older people which, voted which for. I'd uh, pay more attention to it. A broken clock is right twice a day. Anyway, we're talking about the March for Science now. Oh, yep. boy. Great. So, there's a March I'm for Science this Saturday on Earth Day, uh, where thousands of scientists, presumably, uh, march no. all oh, across shit. the country and the world, really. There was uh, over 600 cities on six continents. Uh, so with Trump in the Oval Office, scientists have been losing seats at policy-making tables. Um, so the the hope was that the march will have an impression that science matters. Uh, already, Trump is calling for a dramatic reduction in the amount of money the U.S. government spends on scientific research. He's scaling back efforts at the EPA to combat climate change, and overall, he seems to disregard or not seek out advice from scientific efforts. He has yet to name a top White House science advisor, and it's unclear if he ever will. Um, the House has recently passed two bills that uh, would stifle scientific research and expertise at the EPA. So all these things were basically the reasons that a bunch of people decided they were going to march in Washington to, um, to support science. And uh, they attracted a lot of support from the scientific mainstream. Major science advocacy groups and publishers, such as the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Geophysical Union, the Association for Psychological Science, and many others have endorsed the march and encouraging, they encourage members to attend. Uh, there's also a consequence the scientists have to wrestle with. A march for science could be self-defeating. If the public gets the impression that scientists are liberal crusaders, it will be a hard mental image to break. Many scientists have long been hesitant to get into the political fray, and some worry that further activism will make future fu future fights for science funding more difficult and more partisan. Um, so, I mean, fights for science already are incredibly partisan, because 
like there's this Robin Williams joke, God rest his soul, that I quite like, which is I think that all people in the Senate and the House should have those jerseys like they do in sports with like labels and stuff for all the people that have put money into their campaign. So that way you know exactly why they're voting the way they're voting. Yeah. So the March organizers are trying to thread a tough needle with their goals, uh, opposing the anti-science policies of the Trump administration while furthering the message that science is not a partisan issue. Uh, as the group's website asserts, quote, anti-science agendas and policies have been advanced by politicians on both sides of the aisle and they harm everyone without exception. Science should neither serve special interests nor be rejected based on personal convictions. At its core, science is a tool for seeking answers. It can and should influence policy and guide our long-term decision-making. That was the that was the quote from the March from Science from their website. It's pretty funny. I'm seeing like a, I don't know, like a flip in history. Like the, the Democrats are doing shit that the Republicans have been doing for like ever, which is... Um, like, what the hell does, like, March for Science mean? Like, we'll give it to the Republicans. If you, if yeah. you, if you walk up to a Republican and go, dude, are you against science? Like, most of them would be like, the fuck no, we like science. Science is fine. It's like, uh, support our troops. You know, all the conservatives before the Iraq war, they're going around going, support our troops, support our troops. What, you don't support our troops? Like, actually talk about, like, what's wrong. Like, a march for climate change, march One. for action in climate change, One. something like that. It's just vague, and it it rubs off as manipulative, which I think it ultimately is. When you say, when you ask Republicans, are you pro-science or anti-science, are you talking about the, the rank-and-file members of the Republican Party, like yourself or Philip? Or I'm not a, I don't like Reagan. Or are you talking about like Reagan or like, hell, I don't know, one one of the Yahoos that's currently in office, like Nunes or Ted Cruz. Inhofe. Yeah, but like walk up to a, a person, like even a conservative and go, do you like science or not? I mean, I, so, so this is who's going to be like, I don't like science. Like, there aren't conservatives, like, waving, like, signs that say, fuck science. Basically, it just distracts from, like, the overall debate. Oh, and basically, not, like, straw man's the other side to the point where it's like, oh, he's dumb hicks. Okay, well, firstly, I'm not saying that all conservatives are dumb hicks. I think that there's quite a few conservatives that are actually quite intelligent. Oh, thank you. Actually, yes, Brett, you would be one of the conservatives that I consider to be intelligent. Like, I so wouldn't. The point is, like, when you, a podcast with you, if I didn't think you were intelligent, and I didn't think you were worthy of conversation. But the point that I'm trying to make is that while there are conservatives that are intelligent, and worthy of conversation, there are people who insist that the world is flat, evolution does not exist, and because it's snowing right now, global warming does not exist. And while those people might not be explicitly anti-science, by insisting that we teach creationism instead of evolution, that action is very anti-science. Yeah. 
Well, um... Put another very abused proverb, actions speak louder than words. You could say the same about, like, uh... No, you can Never mind. Uh... It's just straw meaning. It's it's not like focused on like any issue. It's just vague. When we were talking about an incident before we even started this podcast about an episode of John Stewart, which explained why we need to have the climate march in the first place. Because he took a tape from well, did the you Yeah, I heard it. Wait, oh yeah, it's recording. The audience needs to hear it. But yeah. Like, the whole thing was that, you know, this fellow in the House Committee for Global Warming, as he explained it, did not understand the basic science of global warming. Like, we have people in office who don't understand the basic science of global warming or don't want to understand the basic science of global warming because they're being paid by big coal and big oil to keep their mouths shut. And like the the change committee says, I don't think this is a partisan issue. You know, I don't think that Hillary Clinton or any of the other Democrats like her would see the way that I'm seeing right now. And they would, in essence, help these companies in big oil and what have you. Actually, not entirely sure. Wait. Do you think that there's any intelligent dissent of climate change? Absolutely. Yes. Like what? So, so here's here's an actual. What would you consider would be an, a valid like argument against climate change? I don't think there are valid arguments against climate change, but it is there is a gap between science and the public. So, here's a here's a study from Pew that shows it asks. The difference between public opinion and scientists on a range of issues and on climate change the topic of climate change is mostly due to human activity they found 50 percent of the public at large said yes 87 percent of scientists said yes uh, uh yeah favor building more nuclear power plants 45 percent of, of the public said yes 65 percent of the scientists said yes also um, i blame so. like CNN and NBC for this because like every single time CNN does a report on climate change or uh, what's it called global warming they always do the same thing they have on a random climate skeptic and Bill Nye the science guy yeah like every single time poor Bill Nye is just back there like why do I have to talk about this again some moron like John Oliver amazing fellow what he did with his show was like let's make this more statistical so let's actually have a thing where we got like we got like 97 scientists versus the three percent who think that global warming is a thing yeah I saw that all right well I mean, I accept climate change, but where the real debate lies in this issue, which I think the march distracts from, is, well, yeah, it exists, but, like, 
how much do we need to sacrifice for it? And like, what are what are the impacts of climate change? What are like the solid impacts of it within like the next two years, within the next ten years? But just to I be mean, clear, hundred years. But just to be clear, there is a separate march for climate. That's a separate thing that's going to happen. Uh, the march for science was uh, specifically about a broader point, which was that yes, science is broadly bipartisan you're right there isn't a substantial difference between republicans and democrats on the idea of are scientists trustworthy but what there is a substantial difference on what there is a substantial problem with right now is politicians elected politicians not supporting science so promoting or cutting funding for the epa uh cutting funding for even in nasa they're keeping funding level but they're shifting it from Earth sciences to they're shifting to, uh, you know, Mars programs and stuff like that. Uh, they're cutting funding for NOAA. They're cutting a lot of funding from the NIH, right? And these are things that um, these are groups that are doing a lot of research, not just into climate change. The NIH does a lot of studies into public health things like cancer. They do a lot of cancer research. They do a lot of grants in terms of finding um, or in, uh, to fund studies for criminal justice psychology things like that basically everything except gun control because they're legally not allowed to run studies on gun control so i think that was the point of the march the point of the march wasn't to have a specific this is about climate change this is about this this is about that this is the march was about bringing awareness to the fact that the government isn't reflecting public opinion the government you know, the thing, the public opinion on things like renewable energy, even if people, Americans don't generally agree on climate change, uh, both parties, people of all sides are, uh, agree that they like clean energy, right? And yet the government isn't, they're cutting funding from supporting that. Yeah, because of the free market. Gotta let the free market do its thing, Paul. Um, if you did let the free market do its thing, you would tax carbon. Uh, All these companies' subsidies. An ANCAP would disagree. Anyways, um, the whole idea that like Republicans trust scientists, I don't think is completely true. And I think there's a little bit of merit to, like, their suspicion. Because who has been, like, funding their... It's obvious that, like, scientists... Well, most scientists are, like, apolitical. They don't, you know, have any political agenda. There might be a couple that do. But most of them just care about their field and, like, the, what they're studying. Um, but, like, the people above them, like, people in the federal government, they're sure as hell political someone um running you know like the climate change committee like Ummer brought up he didn't know shit about climate change and he was sure as hell political so those are the kinds of people who are deciding what goes into science funding basically i have to say brett brings up a very interesting point that's something that i actually reminds me of something that i read about which is that it's very difficult to get confirmation 
research projects done, if you know what I'm saying. Like in the scientific world, it's considered very interesting and very good and very awesome to break something, you know, to be the first person to study this. Like, you know how, like, you see all these things like, oh, yeah, dark chocolate lowers your cholesterol or chocolate helps you be better in bed. Like those kinds of studies, they make lots and lots of money, even though they have, like, often poor sample sizes or results, especially when you realize, like, the people putting money into a lot of these scientific things. So, anyways, so, so this is this is the oh. difference between good science and bad science, right? Because I the whole notion of Republicans, conservatives being skeptical of science because they get government funding is fucking absurd. Okay, because if you <laughs> Ooh, were worried about hard. if you were worried about funding, it is way more lucrative to do bullshit studies for the sugar industry or for the oil industry. If this was about money, like three of the top 10 most valuable companies in the world are oil and gas countries or oil and gas companies. The money, if you were going to pick something for the money, being on the pro climate change side of it wouldn't be the fucking side you would pick. Maybe you're a mediocre scientist. Maybe you're a mediocre debater. Maybe you're not good enough to uh, prove or manipulate people into thinking that greenhouse gases are good for you. Rule one of this podcast, no ad hominem attacks. Green, what, how, what the hell kind of argument is greenhouse gases are good for you? That's like, like what that's, you're saying. Like, this is no, why you wait. need to march on science because people don't understand what the fuck a greenhouse gas is. I mean, like, that yeah. traps in infrared heat, that traps in ultraviolet radiation, that warms the earth. That's yes, how that I, works. I said, I said greenhouse gas is good for you in an example that you didn't hear. Um, but what I was saying is like, Okay, sure. Using companies to manipulate people um, is very lucrative, but there's only so much room for those kinds of people. Like, like um, it may be a bustling industry. That doesn't mean that government manipulation of science can't happen, just because see, it's super lucrative in the corporate world to manipulate science. Like that doesn't stand. No, but that's I, I why you have peer-reviewed studies. That's the point. Yeah, that. but. Even if they're peer-reviewed, like, it matters, like, where your focus is. So, like, the government sets out, like, a certain amount of money for, like, certain categories. If each and every year that category is climate change, well, then scientists are only going to be finding stuff about climate change. It's like if you have a dead body and you're trying to figure out how he died and you're only focusing on, like, one part of the body over and over and over again because that's where your money's coming from to research that area. And you're not looking at the, any of the other parts. So it leads to kind of like this tunnel vision if there's, if there's a political agenda and, um, like, there's, there's a political incentive to, like, study this certain area. But, but, the but, there, but there is a financial incentive to go against climate change again like you're ignoring the fact that there is tons of money there's tons of money being poured into climate change denial into climate change mystery to those people saying like oh 
well, you know, this model can't necessarily predict whether it's going to be two degrees or one and a half degrees. And so therefore we just throw out the entire argument altogether. Right. It's this expansion of scientific uncertainty to discredit science overall. So something that I would like to say, firstly, is no, this thing like these people and the, these people in the government know better than anyone else how lucrative it is to be anti-climate. Because I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I don't and say that I don't think that people like John McCain or Ted Cruz are idiots. John McCain is an idiot. Okay, well that's your he's, no, he's a genuine idiot. Like on an aircraft carrier. He was flying out. He flew jets and shit. Um, he pressed the wrong button during takeoff, and it launched a missile on the deck, and it literally killed like five people. All right, but ignoring that, he's a total dumbass. That's Just that's listen that's to him talk. All right, continue. Hey, <laughs> thank you for that. So, like, the point they're trying to make is, I don't think that they're ignoring climate change. Because they have some kind of boner against climate change. I think it's because it's far more lucrative of them to please their oil tycoon masters. Like, if you look at the Bush presidency, Bush, who was selling oil in Texas, admittedly very badly, and Dick Cheney, who used to be in charge of freaking Halliburton. Okay, like, yeah, or you could just not trust a guy who's been hired by the Obama administration for the past eight years. Anyway, something that Bill Nye says a lot is that... Uh -huh. Yes, I know, Brett, you don't like Einstein's <laughs> guy. He's, he, he was all right, and then he just turned into a total sellout, and it's annoying. He was really good until started, he started saying things I didn't like. No, his show was just so terrible. God. Well, I would agree. I was fine with the climate. Yeah, I was fine with the climate change stuff. Like that was fine, but he turned into himself. That's another thing that irritated me about the the march for science. Like most of the people, they weren't even like saying things scientific. They were just regurgitating a bunch of shitty sci-fi pop culture. Anyway, like, Star Wars <laughs> references, Star Trek references. It was just a total geek fest. Ruined it. That lovely comment. Like, what Bill Maher was saying was that climate change skeptics take, like, plus or one, two percent, and make it, like, plus or one hundred, two hundred percent, and use that to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, we're going to get rid of this entire model because, to be quite frank, in science, nothing can be a hundred percent exact. Like, there's a reason... The theory of gravity is still called the theory of gravity. There's like a bunch because like even like something so properly researched as gravity, we're not 100% sure of. Because like I, I forget, I think Einstein had some quibbles with gravity, but I don't know enough. Relate the example to the topic, Umber. But the point that I'm trying to make is that in the world of science. Nothing can be 100% exact like that because science is always new. Science is growing. Science is changing. Science isn't a, isn't a study of 100% exacts. There's bound to be variables. There's bound to be inexact numbers. So are you saying that climate change isn't 100% proven? 
I'm saying it's not 100% proven. Oh, all right. No, no, no. No, that's, that's, the, that's the difference. Yes, there's nothing is 100% proven, but there is scientific peer-reviewed consensus. The scientific yeah. peer-reviewed consensus is climate change is real and man-made. The pro- What is now being, and you see this in the shifting discussion now, is the Republican talking point is no longer does climate change exist or does it not, because it's becoming increasingly difficult to make that argument, especially when your constituents in Miami are flooding every other day, right? So instead, the the goalpost is now moving to there's uncertainty. Dude, that's like Marco Rubio's district. Marco Rubio's (laughs) district is flooding. All right, continue. Uh, Whatever. It's a joke. So so what what they've really moved to now is the scientific uncertainty of the models. The scientific uncertainty of the models that say we don't know if it's going to be two degrees celsius by 2100 or if it's going to be two and a half degrees celsius by 2100 uh you know depending on if we go this way like we we have a little bit of uncertainty around these models we had a little bit of uncertainty around uh the rise of sea levels because that's part of science like these are models at based off of not a lot of data right we only have a hundred and so a hundred years or so worth of data that we're trying to build models from so we can very easily tell that it's getting warmer. We can very easily tell that sea levels are rising. We can very easily tell that 2016 was the hottest year on record compared to 2015 was the hottest year on record before that. And 2014 was the hottest year on record before that. We can measure that. We can measure that bleaching of the uh, the Great Barrier Reef is at all-time high due to acidity. We can measure the fact that the ocean uh, pH level is getting more acidic we can measure that the temperature of the oceans is rising all those things can we can measure and we know that it's increasing but the model there's some uncertainty around it and what now is happening is people are using that uncertainty and the uh effect to be like oh well you know maybe it'll be nothing right maybe this is just a blip and you can't know because you have uncertainty in your model and it's like that's a complete misrepresentation of the science the science is saying it's going to increase. We just can't know if it's going to be one one and eight one point eight degrees or two point two degrees, and and so it's completely disingenuous to be like, no, you shouldn't do anything. It's going to increase and it's going to be bad. The question is how bad and how quickly. But that gets turned into well, maybe it won't be bad at all, and so we shouldn't do anything. All right, well, I mean, I agree that we should do some things about climate change. I feel like everybody does. It's not really anything surprising. Well, I feel like the U.S. government doesn't, so. Yeah, the U.S. government doesn't want to. The U.S. government doesn't want to because the people in the U.S. government that don't want to are getting money from big oil and big coal. And they're kind of old, wrinkly geezers. Like, oh, that's me. Ad hominem. All right, let's see next topic. So the next story is about the Turkey referendum. So last Sunday, oh. Turkey held a referendum on expanding presidential powers. Uh, they voted in a narrow margin with 51% of the vote to give mm-hmm. President Erdogan uh, considerable new powers uh, while leaving him subject to few, if any, meaningful checks and balances. 
the referendum, if fully implemented, would change Turkey from a parliamentary democracy into one run by a strong executive president who will absorb all the current functions of the prime minister. The new president will be free from accountability to the country's parliament, will wield broad budgetary powers, and will have complete autonomy to shape the executive branch as he sees fit. In the new system, Erdogan will also be poised to exercise significant control over the judiciary. Um, and he the just approved amendments will allow him to run for additional presidential terms that could extend his stay in power until 2029. So there's another election in 2019. That is bad. Okay, you care to expand on that? Uh, Turkey definitely isn't going to join the EU now. Are you fucking Turkey's not going to join the EU. Really? You know, I was really disappointed because, you know, I heard Turkey was going to join the EU and then I heard that Trump was actually going to be a not shitty president for once. Turkey's been trying to join the EU for a while, actually. Turkey's been, yeah. Turkey's been lobbying to join the EU for a while. I have a feeling like it isn't going to work out. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it's a sad state for Turkey overall to be sliding into this sort of um, well, autocracy. Let's be honest. Call it what it is. Theocracy. Um, well... She- Jesus it's not Christ. quite that bad. Erdogan, yes, Erdogan is more religious than typical, but he is not, like, it's not a caliphate. He's not an Islamist. So he's not to that extent. But he definitely is an autocrat. Yes, I think, he's using it. Yes, like I think he is too. No evidence that they're trying to form a caliphate. Yeah, there's I no mean, evidence of that. I mean, not it that. could be, like, practically a caliphate, except, like, in words and in so, law. I mean, what is a caliphate? It's like an absolute uh, like a military leader. You don't even have to be a religious leader to be a caliph. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's a religious that, state. Look, I'm not going to get into right. that. They're not establishing a caliphate in Turkey. The point so, is... Let me, let me explain. Like a semi-caliphate. I feel like you might have slept through world history. So when the Prophet Muhammad died... Peace be upon him. Oh, good boy. Thank Continue. you. Then a bunch of people said, you know, Muhammad's dad is the new caliph. You know, like the successor to Muhammad. Another person's like, no, no, no. It's the son. It's his. It's his son-in-law. I forget. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Know this. Know this. Educate the listeners. Though. Yes, yes. But the whole thing is. Both of them spread off and made their own caliphates, which is essentially a nation of under Islam, under the caliphs. And those essentially people were successors to the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, like, you could say that they're like spiritual leaders, but I don't I mean, Who is that guy in the Crusades uh, who fought with Richard the Lionheart? Sultan Salahuddin. Yeah, Saladin. Do you really think he was a religious leader? He was a caliph. Yes. Was he like leading, leading prayers in mosques, or was he like 
giving speeches before battle saying like Allah wills this slay the infidels and take back our lands I don't think like, they're mutually exclusive also particularly okay, yeah, in a time uh, of war here. so but if they aren't then uh, er- Erdogan could be a caliph Erdogan but there's no evidence he's establishing an Islamic Republic. There's I mean, no he doesn't say it. He doesn't say oh, yeah. it. He's it using Islam to... Okay, he's using Islam to... doesn't even say that Salah Hadin was actually the caliph. There was actually another fellow who was the caliph at the time, Al-Adin. Yeah, and he, he probably sat back and did some prayers. Right? Regardless, so, yeah. Saladin, the guy who you're trying to straw man and say was a caliph, wasn't even a caliph. He was just a sultan. Do you look that up? Fucking course, I looked that up. The, Regardless, when, the primary function of a caliph is a statesman, I'd say. And Regardless, fills, the the point is, Turkey, it doesn't even have to be a textbook definition. That's like saying that Donald Trump is the Pope. That is basically what you're saying. Uh, well, Donald Trump isn't really using religion a whole lot. Okay, fine. Tony Abbott is the Pope. That's basically what you're saying. Well, anyway. uh, I think we're disagreeing over semantics here, so. Anyway, the point is, Turkey is definitely falling into autocracy, and I think I think that's a bad place um, for one of our top allies and one of our top buffers to Syria. Um, right now, Turkey has the distinction of being the world's leading jailer of journalists, according to the Committee <laughs> to Protect Journalists. Uh, in the aftermath of a failed coup attempt last summer, Erdogan dismissed 100,000 public sector employees from their jobs. Uh, another 40, 47,000 people remain in jail waiting trial on coup-related charges. Um, Weren't people like unreasonably shot or something like that? Do it. Uh, the coup. They just got a bunch of people like, you're in the coup, we're going to have you all executed or something like that. Uh, no, they're awaiting trial. So right now they're, uh, as of April 2nd. One second. Alright, good. We're good. As of April 2nd, when the latest official figures were released, more than 113,000 people had been at least temporarily detained in connection with the coup, and more than 20,000 police officers, military personnel, judges, and prosecutors were in custody. Many thousands more teachers and other state employees have lost their jobs on the basis of alleged Gulenist ties. And Gulen is the guy that they're accusing of orchestrating the coup. Uh, Fatula Gulen. He actually lives in Pennsylvania, which is interesting. So, like, I think he was like, how the hell would I have orchestrated this? I don't even think that's possible. 
Well, there's there was a Gulenist movement. Now you're getting into the history of Turkish politics, and Gulen and uh, Erdogan used to be allies on the same side because they are more religious than the secular government that was at the time in the late 90s and early 2000s. But eventually they split, and Gulen, after Erdogan came to power and there was a falling out among the parties, uh, Gulen came to the United States, but he still has, theoretically, allegedly, he has significant political ties still inside Turkey, and so it's alleged that the coup attempt were pro-Gulen operatives inside the military that attempted the coup last year. But I guess the key question is, what does this mean in terms of the Syria <laughs> conflict? What the fuck was that? There's, there's not enough cross. I, I want more crossfire. What is? More big... What is Literally it? Literally, the whole <laughs> rule one, expectation number one that I stated was I don't want us to be crossfire. Uh, all right. Well, like Paul is talking right now. I want to respect him, and I want to hear his point. Well, I was just asking the question of what does this mean in terms of Turkey's assistance in the war in Syria. Turkey also has been cracking down on the PKK. The Kurdish, uh, the Kurds are helping us also in Syria. So where does this put us? I mean, Turkey is a very important ally for us. Like, There's a reason that nobody important, except for maybe the Kardashians refuse to acknowledge the Armenian genocide because that's a big no-no in Turkey and if we bring that up it'll really piss them off and like President Trump like the the minute the referendum passed he called Erdogan as like you know Erdogan congratulations about winning your election and then you know, Erdogan's so like, well, congratulations on winning your election on the slimmest of margins, you know? All right, well, now we're going to talk about the topic mm-hmm. of the podcast. TM. North Korea. Yes. The land of Kim Jong-un, internet censorship... Eating dogs, and apparently not the interview. Hmm. Indeed. So on Thursday, when this is actually last th- Thursday, the week before last, uh, NBC News came out with an anonymous, anonymously sourced uh, story, which cited unnamed intelligence officials that said the U.S. was quote prepared to launch a preemptive strike with conventional weapons against North Korea. Should officials become convinced that North Korea is about to follow through with a nuclear weapons test? Um, ultimately, that ended up not happening. Uh, the NBC, it appears the NBC News report was wrong. Multiple other news outlets were unable to confirm that initial report, and defense and intelligence officials aggressively downplayed the possibility of a preemptive strike, calling the report, quote, wildly wrong, 
crazy, extremely dangerous. Um, like a North Korean parade where they had what looked like ICBMs, but nobody knows if they work or not. Yeah. So on Saturday, and again, this was the Saturday before last, North Korea held a huge military parade to celebrate the Day of the Sun. Uh, it's one of the biggest, most important annual celebrations for the regime, celebrating the anniversary of the 1912 birth of Kim Il-sung, North Korea's founder and the current leader's grandfather. The spectacle featured tens of thousands of soldiers marching in perfect unison, military aircraft flying in formation, and military hardware rolling through Pyongyang's main Kim Il-sung Square, including large canisters that analysts said could be carrying new types of ICBMs that could one day be capable of hitting the United States. Uh, Joe Surinicone, president of the Plowshares Fund, which tries to stop the spread of nuclear weapons, told the Washington Post, quote, This was a promise of future capabilities more than a demonstration of existing missiles. We do not know if there is actually an ICBM in that canister, but it is certainly coming, end quote. Uh, Though the 33-year-old dictator was in attendance at the parade, Kim didn't address the crowd himself. One of his close aides did, though, delivering a speech aimed directly at the United States, where he said, quote, If the United States wages reckless provocations against us, our revolutionary power will instantly counter with annihilating strike, and we will respond to full-out war with full-out war, and to nuclear war with our style of nuclear strike warfare. End quote. Uh, The chest-pounding threat was somewhat undercut a few hours later when the North Korean military attempted a missile launch, only to see it blow up almost immediately, according to U.S. military officials. What was intended to be a strong, defiant show of force quickly became an international embarrassment. Echoing an earlier statement from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Vice President Mike Pence told CNN that the administration was, quote, going to abandon the failed policy of strategic patience, end quote. This refers to the Obama administration's approach toward North Korea, which essentially entailed working with international partners to increase pressure on the North Korean regime in hopes that it would eventually choose to give up its nuclear weapons on its own. Now, follow-up to this, there's a couple of follow-ups to this, and we'll start with the Carl Vinson escapades. And then maybe we'll talk about that before we get into more of it. But uh, on April 10th, The U.S. Pacific Command announced that the USS Carl Vinson had left Singapore on April 8th and that rather than conduct planned exercises with Australia, would be heading for the Western Pacific, the North Korean Peninsula. From there, things swirled out of control and quickly. Uh, We now know that the USS Carl Vinson was nowhere near the Korean Peninsula and was instead conducting exercises near Australia. We know this because... It was on its way there. Yeah. So. We know this was we know this because the US Navy posted a photo of the Carl Vinson fleet in Indonesia just a few days ago. It's not expected to arrive near North Korea until later this month or maybe even next month. The White House let the world believe the US the USS Carl Vinson was heading to South Korea when it wasn't, and the Trump administration refuses to own up to the lie. Sean Spicer said in a press conference, quote, The president said that we have an armada going towards the peninsula. That's a fact. It happened. It is happening, rather. And I wasn't correcting myself. That was the quote from Sean Spicer. Uh, But it's not a fact. It's a lie. And it's a lie that has hurt credibility overseas. South Korea's conservative party, which is staunchly pro-U.S. and hopes to win during the upcoming elections on May 9th, even chimed in to say that, quote, if that was a lie, then during Trump's term, South Korea will not trust whatever Trump says, end quote. 
Uh, Jenny Town, assistant director of the U.S. Korea Institute at John Hopkins, said, quote, the seeming misrepresentation of Carl Vinson's strike group's intended purpose in Asia really hurts U.S. credibility on this issue and will make implementation of any sort of policy toward North Korea harder in the long run, end quote. Uh, the part that confounds experts is that it's completely unnecessary. If your goal is to promote peace, this is not how to do it. Uh, Town goes on to say, quote, it was also unnecessarily inflammatory at a time when tensions were already high and counterproductive for trying to reassure our allies. The Trump administration needs to better understand that consistency in messaging is extremely important when dealing with sensitive geopolitical matters, end quote. Uh, the South Korean papers are also having a field day with a lie bolstering anti-American sentiment. The Korean newspaper Jung Ang Ibo's headline declared, quote, Trump's lie over the Carl Vinson and further went on to say Xi Jinping and Putin must have had a good jeer over this one. They go on to say, like North Korea, which is often accused of displaying fake missiles during military parades, is the United States, too, now employing bluffing as its North Korea policy. Uh, the English-language Korea Herald was cautiously optimistic that Trump's lies were simply the way he does business, but warned that such a style could accidentally send the region into war. The Korea Herald says, quote, Any sudden escalation and saber-rattling, coupled with the misleading statements, could spawn a needless flare-up in tensions and public anxiety. And in a worst-case scenario, it may culminate in a miscalculation and armed clash, which no country and no people in the world could afford, end quote. Uh, experts on U.S.-Japanese relations are also concerned. At this point, it appears that Japan, a country with close military ties to the U.S., cooperated with the lie by simply staying quiet. Says, quote, uh, so this is uh, Nurishige Michishida, an international security expert in Tokyo, uh, said, quote, whatever the case, whether it was deliberate misinformation or miscommunication between the Pentagon and the White House, it's quite serious. It undermines the credibility of U.S. leadership, end quote. All right. Well, again, so as I said earlier, it's probably a good idea not to trust President Trump because, oh, I'm sorry, but like this guy waffles so much. Like first he says we shouldn't bomb Syria no matter what. And then when in 2013 Assad drops chemical weapons on his people, he's like we shouldn't bomb them. And Obama is stupid for wanting to bomb them. And then in 2017, he's like, all right, it looks like Assad's bombed his own people. I'm going to bomb the living crap out of him. You know, he's gone from saying Mexico's going to pay for the wall, then Mexico's not going to pay for the wall. Then here's what your health care is going to include. Oh. This is what your health care is not going to include. Like, if I were to take a shot every single time... Donald Trump flip-flopped, I would die of liver poisoning. Like, there's this famous internet video, which is called Mitt Romney Debates Himself. But I feel like an even better one would be Donald Trump Debates Himself, because the amount of times he's changed his stances is just kind of unreal. And I feel so like did that. the conservative who supports some of his initial positions or supports some of his new positions, you shouldn't be okay with this. Because, like, you never know when he's going to change his mind or go for some completely different position. You should look it up. Stephen Colbert literally did that. So He just took various clips of Trump and pitted them against each other in a debate. Would you guys feel all that bad if we invade North Korea? 
I might do it for PR. Here's my thing, and that I'm very unlike the left in that I don't have an issue with, like, going into these countries. But my issue is when we go into Iraq, when we go into Afghanistan, when we go into Korea, when we go into Vietnam, we need to have a decent plan. Because, like, Korea, we had taken South Korea, we had done good, we had established a perfectly livable situation, then General Nancy Boy MacArthur decides we're going to push into North Korea and take North Korea, and then his ass gets China involved in the war, and that just pointlessly prolongs things. Or in Vietnam, where we were about to get a peace treaty between the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese that secured lasting peace, where Richard Nixon told the South Vietnamese to not cooperate with the deal because the North Vietnamese were going to screw them over so he could get political points in the next election by dissing his opponent for not being able to deliver peace. Then, when he became president, he did bombing runs for 10 straight days and had his secretary tell uh, the Vietnamese people that he was a madman with his finger on the nuclear button. Okay. Well, I, I feel like with North Korea, there's a lot more at stake, honestly, than just what's been at stake with Afghanistan and Iraq and not having a strategy and all that. I mean, going to war with North Korea would be substantially different. So there's an interview uh, with Vox did with uh, Jonathan Pollack, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, specializes in U.S. strategy in Asia and Pacific uh, to gain a better sense of how it would work if the U.S. were to launch a preemptive strike. Um so he says, uh, he goes on to say, he says, what would the North Korean response be? And Pollock says, if for sake of argument, the U.S. decides to embark on a preemptive attack, uh, which I do not in any way, shape or form endorse or anticipate, then we had better get ready for a very big war. If you go in and think you're just going to do the equivalent of a surgical strike, we're just going to take out their testing site, their nuclear weapons testing site, and assume that nothing else bad is going to happen. That's very bad planning. It would be a very big war. It would have to be if you want to prevent something really, really bad from happening as a consequence of your initiating a war, given the kinds of capability that North Korea demonstrably has. Hundreds of missiles, thousands of artillery pieces, nuclear weapons, special forces, you name it. Then they ask, what would happen to Japan and South Korea? And Pollock says, the risk would be that Japan would be the only country in the history of civilization to have been attacked yet again with a nuclear weapon. You would see devastations of all kinds directed against South Korea. You could assume, for example, and you don't even need nuclear weapons to do it, direct attacks on South Korea's nuclear reactor complex. South Korea has one of the most developed nuclear energy components of any country in the world. You're talking about Seoul, a city in which, according to its population, has more than 20 million people that is within artillery range of North Korea. You're quite possibly talking about use of chemical weapons. The North is very serious about war. They plan for war. They train for war. They have huge armed forces. And under circumstances of a direct attack by the U.S. on their territory, I don't think they would have a lot of incentives for restraints. 
they asked him to clarify so Pyongyang could fire nuclear warheads that would reach Japan. And he says, well, that's one of the great debates, uh, whether they've miniaturized the warhead sufficiently to be able to put it atop a missile and reach Japan. Um, but he says it is a concern um, and it would there's evidence that they would have it, basically. And he goes on to talk about what the fallout of a war would be, particularly with China and Russia, which share borders with North Korea. So it says China has a 1,400-kilometer shared border with North Korea, and you have ethnic, ethnic Koreans living in northeastern China. Russia's border with North Korea is tiny, but they have interests of their own as well. Both Russia and China would see this as a profound failure of nuclear nonproliferation if the U.S. is prepared, by definition of its own interest, to undertake these kinds of attacks in the face of opposition from just about everybody else to do it unilaterally. So... So the fallout of this would be considerably more devastating. And I think one of the things we've seen, too, is um, the refugee situation. So the refugee situation that you see happening to Europe because of the, the Syrian war. Um, North Korea has a similar popula- has a similar population size to Syria, but an even less um, an even more economically challenged population. And China is very concerned about the refugee crisis they would face if there's a war with uh, with North Korea, and that would that would have a lot of fallout for the United States Chinese relations. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I don't really think it'll lead to anything. It's just more uh, posturing. Trump wants to act like a tough guy. Go away from the Obama narrative of, oh, Obama's going around bowing to all the leaders, bending over. Well, so here's the problem, and this is breaking news as of today. Oh, here you go. In an unusual move, the entire U.S. Senate is being called to the White House for a briefing on North Korea. Uh, Washington has become increasingly concerned. This is from BBC. Washington has become increasingly concerned at North Korean missile and nuclear tests and threats to its neighbors in the U.S. The briefing involving all 100 senators, as well as Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and Defense Secretary James Mattis, is being held on Wednesday. Uh, China uh, this is talking about other stuff. Um, for his part, Mr. Trump said North Korea's continued belligerence was destabilizing the North Korean peninsula. White House officials regularly go to Congress to brief on national security matters, but it is unusual for the whole Senate to go to the White House. Uh, among Mr. Tillerson and General Mattis will be National Intelligence Director Dan Coats and General Joseph Dunford, Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. Um, so this goes on further, actually, uh, as of 2.05 p.m. today, the State Department announced that U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson will chair a special meeting of the U.N. Security Council on Friday at 10 a.m. to talk about North Korea. So, it's a little bit more than just rhetoric, I think. They're t- My opinion, if you're holding a meeting of all 100 senators in the White House and the very, well, within two days of that, holding a special meeting with the UN Security Council, that's, I don't know, that seems like an awful lot to just be rhetoric. I mean, honestly... With this president, I don't really know 
what to expect if you know what I'm saying because he says I'm not going to bomb Syria then he bombs Syria like like interesting about the his bombing Syria is like he was given an interview and he describes when he was giving the attack he's like oh I was at Mar-a-Lago I was eating this juicy chocolate cake it had amazing icing you know it had mocha in it and I was with I think he was with Xi Jinping and then we decided to bomb Iraq no 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 wait I'm and then the other person asked him, do you mean Syria? Right, we bombed Syria. He doesn't even remember the country that he bombed. It's one of those countries. They're right next to each other. You can't blame him. So, to, to the extent of what's going to happen, this is what they're saying. This is the official White House, I guess, discussion of what they're going to do. Uh, Mr. Trump has told UN Security Council ambassadors meeting at the White House that the UN must be ready to impose new sanctions on North Korea. Uh, the U.S. is pursuing a multi-pronged strategy to make its point on North Korea. Uh, first, it wants the UN to tighten sanctions even further and ensure those in place are properly enforced. Secondly, it is attempting to put fresh pressure on China to rein in its neighbor. The third aspect is the sending of the aircraft carrier to the North Korean peninsula, making clear military action is, is an option. So they're now saying that, no, for real this time, the Carl Vinson is going to go to North Korea. Uh, North Korea responded by saying that the country's forces were, quote, combat ready to sink the Carl Vinson. So, you know what they should do? Instead of sending Carl Vincent, they should send what's his face, an annoying basketball player. Uh, Dennis Rodman. Yeah, just send Dennis Rodman. He'll fix everything up. Yeah. So. Thanks, why, that was helpful. Why were you playing Soviet music, Brett? I would imagine that it's actually North Korea's anthem. Sounded Soviet to me. They're all communists. Hello, Brett, are you there? I think he muted himself. Yeah. Music. Hello? Yes, now we can hear you. This is weird. Wait, you What's... heard that? It worked? Yeah, yeah we heard so... that. Oh, yay. Was there a point to that? They've got some pretty good songs. Like, I was watching the um, the live stream of Kim Jong-un's birthday. They have some pretty damn good songs. They got um, an electronic philharmonic group. 
one of the only approved by the dear leader. Phil was showing me some of it. This is pre- some pretty good stuff. You have to look up without a break. It's a they great also have the group. They also have the group of like five-year-old guitarists. So, anyway, I don't know. If that's, that's no motherland without you. That's a. It's probably my favorite. Okay. Well, do you have any thoughts about North Korea and us invading North Korea? Uh, if Trump does it, it's going to be the most seamless, beautiful invasion you've ever seen in your whole life. Nothing pretty Trump- interesting, like reading the strategy, well, like, uh, leaked strategies from like, um, the U.S. like theorizing on how to deal with North Korea. And it's basically, um, like taking like a bunch of central areas and just like dumping a bunch of humanitarian aid everywhere on the walls in blood if donald trump puts us to war in north korea <laughs> there's going trump to, that's doing it though. he's going to give a speech it's that makes publish speech sound like i have a dream okay yeah you can say that trump is incompetent and he's a buffoon but like the generals, they're 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 American generals. They're like the guardians of the empire. They know their shit, and they and have all kinds of incentives not to like let people die, because they serve so the, government, the country and it's for their honor. You know, Afghanistan. military mentality. What? Him Afghanistan. Him Iraq. Um, yeah, I wouldn't really want to put my trust in the generals to avoid a conflict. Yeah, but the thing with Afghanistan and Iraq, like Iraq was actually pretty damn smooth up until... Um, <laughs> what? Iraq was smooth. Uh, ha, ha, yeah, I know. Uh, what? Smooth. <laughs> like and bird. When... Up until the point where we like um, took out Assad, uh, Saddam Hussein from power, worked perfectly well. Like we, the only problem is that like we didn't have a coherent like plan as for like occupation. So we were fine when we were dealing with like a formal military that you know drew up its ranks in front of us and had like tanks and shit. But we weren't ready to like occupy a country and deal with insurgents. Um, but that's part of it. You can't say that it goes smooth, except for the part right after where it didn't go smoothly because we weren't prepared. Well, like, it, it never went be, smoothly. It'll probably be easier in um, North Korea because you have South Korea, um, like right next to it, so they can do the dirty work basically. I and, do. Sorry, go hmm? ahead. Go ahead. And also, like, China doesn't want, like, a bunch of insurgents and, like, a massive, like, crisis on their border. So if the U.S., like, goes in, like, all out, China's not going to be like, oh, we're going to support North Korea now. Fuck you, nuclear war. They're going to be like, okay, how do we minimize the amount of North Koreans pouring over our border, basically? So everyone in the region is going to be trying to, like, mitigate... The, the, the conflict and like make it as minimal as possible and uh, in terms of like toppling over dictators and standing armies 
the U.S. is pretty fucking good at that. So I don't think it will be that bad in terms of all that war. Well, I vehemently disagree with that. I think that in I think that the one place where there would be an advantage with North Korea is that it is a much more traditional enemy than insurgents and terrorists. Um, in terms of, yeah, this is an army that has planes and we probably can fight that more effectively. But on the other hand, it's an army that has planes and nuclear weapons and artillery, right? So in terms of the losses, they're going to be way worse. ISIS doesn't have planes. They don't have artillery. They don't have nuclear weapons. That's It's an entirely different thing that... I just the results of it would be were, far more devastating, especially for South Korea. An invasion of North Korea, I would be surprised if one shell touched like any city in South Korea. I think that's. I mean, Seoul is within artillery. Like I just said, twenty million yeah. people in Seoul are within artillery range of North Korea. Yeah. And in North Korea isn't like ISIS, where ISIS is like fifteen thousand like people. Artillery under this, this isn't like this ISIS, where this isn't like ISIS, where there's fifteen thousand people in caves. North Korea has like a two million person standing army. Yeah, and it's standing in the open. Just get and, a B two, but a B two, the stealth ones. Like it, any... Like, have you seen have you seen the, the, the videos of the bombing of Iraq uh, of Baghdad like at the beginning of uh, the Iraq war? Yeah, it's fucking like crazy. Like the precision and everything going so fast in the amount of destruction. There's right. definitely interest to like keep it. So so but I feel like I feel like. You didn't listen to the stuff that I was just talking about. Yeah, you with, said it's with the Pollock with an guy. Range. No, no, no. In order to so, shoot shells. So, so going going back to this interview with Pollock, they asked him, "What would the U.S. actually target in the case of a preemptive strike?" He says, Pollock says, "The implication is we would target their nuclear test site. We would target every other location we presume they might have nuclear materials or nuclear weapons hidden. In North Korea, Lord knows, has m- lots of mountains and caves." Many would presume that we would target the top leadership if you could locate them and know where they are. And a lot of what they do is underground. If you're in all bets or if you're in an all bets are off scenario, then you're going to utilize every capability that you have. You're going to mobilize every warplane. If North Korea is about to embark on something that is so extreme and so dire that it must be prevented at all costs, you must one do so by whatever means you have necessary to prevent that attack from occurring. And two, deny North Korea any plausible means to retaliate for the attack that would be initiated against them. Those two are very tall orders. You can get lots of targets. North Korea has more than a million men under arms. They've got tunnel complexes, nuclear sites. Could we throw everything but the kitchen sink at it? I guess. But this is also analyzed to death. And when we look at it, we come to the same conclusion every time. We would, quote, win a war, unquote, but the price our allies would pay far exceeds whatever the gains would be. This is why they call North Korea the land of no good options. Um, One thing that I would like to state is that 
What any use a Fabian strategy. Like, I feel as if the enemy of any army is, essentially speaking, a Fabian strategy. Because if you look at um, the original Afghanistan war between the Soviet Union and the rebels that we armed, they were never really able to defeat all those enemies because you never really know who's a combatant and who isn't. And you never know when they're going to come out and when they're going to attack you. And you never ever are able to fight a hard-pitched battle, which is what your army is ready for. And the problem is, since your army doesn't know the terrain, you're kind of a bit up shit's creek here. Well, yeah, we bombed the shit out of them before we set a foot in it. I mean, but then you're bombing the shit out of North Korean civilians. Yeah, that's what happened. I mean, that's also not okay, because that's a freaking war crime. That's what they did with Dresden. It wasn't okay there, too, either. What about Berlin? Still not okay. Oh, really? Okay. So when the Nazis bombed the shit out of London... That wasn't okay, And the British bomb it back. They shouldn't. Well, just to be clear, all of those things were before the UN and therefore war crimes, so... Um, like, if you want to bomb the hell out of the Gestapo, go for it. Like, the average German citizen does not is not a Nazi, especially yeah. in World War II. But there's always collateral that you can avoid. And if you want to win a war, you have to be ruthless. Yes, that also means committing war crimes, which are against the Geneva Convention, and just generally not morally okay. Who cares? Well, there you go. So, to cover the last <laughs> bit of that, uh, just to give an idea of who we're dealing with here, um, this was a quote that Trump had okay. talking about North Korea. And he says, quote, I hope things work out well. I hope there's going to be peace. But they've been talking with this gentleman for a long time. You read Clinton's book, and he said... Oh, we made such a great peace deal, and it was a joke. You look at different things over the years with President Obama, everybody has been outplayed. They've all been outplayed by this gentleman. Here's the problem. There were two different North Korean leaders under Clinton's presidency and Obama's presidency. So Trump seems to have lumped all three North Korean leaders into one, this gentleman, and also not say his name. So I'm not even sure Trump actually knows who the leader of North Korea is right now. And I think that should give us all a great pause before we walk into a war with And yeah, he's just gonna he's just gonna fuck up and invade the wrong country, you know? And it's gonna start World War Three. Yes. That was always the concern with Trump. I'm sorry. Like he has blatantly said that he knew nothing about North Korea before. I mean, this is a quote from an uh, an interview that he did with uh, the Wall Street Journal where he talked about uh, he w- getting a history lesson from Chinese President Xi Jinping. He says, quote, after listening for 10 minutes, I realized it's not so easy, unquote. It's like, yeah, did you not know beforehand that the North Korea situation wasn't easy? And more importantly, 10 minutes from the Chinese president 
a theoretical adversary of ours. You spent 10 minutes talking to this guy one-on-one and that all of a sudden now that's your worldview. Like you can be that easily swayed by an adversarial leader. That's incredibly distressing. If we're going to go to war with this. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yes. They're a pseudo. That's a cold war mentality right there. It's a pseudo. Like we're allies on some things and we're adversaries on others, but mainly because of their North Korea policy. And also they don't like Japan. So, and they keep taking a bunch of, a bunch of international land and territory in the South China Sea. So all those things, those create tensions with China. But this guy clearly doesn't know who the leader of North Korea is, doesn't understand the implications of North Korean and Chinese politics. That's not the guy I want to trust taking us into into a war. Sorry. I mean, to be fair, I'm not entirely sure if that's a fairly accurate statement because at the same time, what do presidents really do during a wartime? Actually, to be fair. Well, they are commander-in-chief. That is true. Actually, that's a good point. Never mind. But something that, that interests me is that, according to official records, we haven't actually been in a war since World War II. Yes. Korea and Vietnam were never officially declared war. Nor has, was Iraq. Right. Or Afghanistan. Or Syria. Those were, all, those were all authorizations for use of military force. Well, that was our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Or if not, I hope you didn't get herpes. Herpes sucks, man. Have you ever had herpes? That shit stays in. Well, theoretically, if you'd ever had herpes, you always have herpes because it doesn't go away. So, like, you can't have it in the past tense. Alright. On that note, adios. Hasta la bye-bye. Alright, see you gents next week.